Good day everyone. It's a joy and a pleasure to once again come together in the name of the resurrected Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. I hope you've had a good week, that you've settled in nicely <laughs> into springtime. That's been a quite a chilly one. We live with the hope that things will get warmer as time marches on. I feel quite overwhelmed just now as I am seated here in the building of Kirklis and Parish Church, just thinking of the many centuries of worship that's taken place here. And over the centuries, God, in His grace and wisdom, has continued to use His church, the Bride of Christ, to share the good news of salvation, using us as His people, broken with lots of shortcomings, to share and distribute His grace. Um, so I'm just taken aback by the fact that this building um, has been here for so long, probably a lot longer than 800 years. Um, this has been a place of worship. And as we will discover shortly in our passage for today, everything that's worth gold sometimes needs to be refined and needs to be tested. We as Christians go through trials and tribulations as well as Paul describes it. And when we persevere and endure through these difficulties, it's as if our faith, when we persist in following Christ's heart, comes up on the other end um, better. And there's almost a depth to our understanding of life. So our passage for today comes from the first letter Peter wrote, um, and it's to a scattered congregation, different small house churches coming together, and they were under severe pressure and oppression and suppression and almost exploited by the government as they were perceived to be a small Judaic sect. So let's hear what Paul, or rather Peter, has to say as a form of exhortation and encouragement to these small, seemingly insignificant communities. Let's just pray together before we read from God's Word. Father, we know that the grass of the fields will wither and the flowers will fall, but that your Word is eternal. It stands forevermore. It is like a double-edged sword cutting in between bone and marrow. We pray that you will use your word to transform us, to shape us more into your likeness, and that as we face our own pain and suffering, you will remind us that it's not for nothing, that there is purpose, and that you, though you might not be responsible for the heartache, Lord, you, in your wisdom, can use it for our betterment and for be the betterment of the world. We thank you for that. In the mighty name of Christ. Amen. Our reading then is from the first epistle of Peter, chapter 2, verses 19 to 25. And it reads as follows. 
For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. And by his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Isn't that beautiful? The shepherd and overseer of your soul. Now, a few days ago, earlier in the week, I was on my way to the church center when I heard the following noise. A crackling sound from above. I was quite startled and overwhelmed and thought, oh, if I have to die with a branch from a tree falling on my head, I really hope that this wouldn't be a case. I always thought if I had to die early in my life at a young-ish age, it would be something exciting or exhilarating like a shark attack somewhere off the coast of Sydney or wherever. Luckily, I sprang into action and I dodged the falling tree. Well, tree branch at least. I informed the property team and after their inspection and advice from not one but two tree surgeons, the sad decision was made to fell the willow to the ground. Just the thought of the tree being cut down left me yeah, feeling quite perplexed and empty. It's become a center point in the garden. George Plum remembers it since he was a boy. I mean, it was still carrying leaves from what I could see. Was this truly necessary? I had my doubts and ultimately my questions whether this wasn't too drastic a move. I became convinced when the tree surgeon showed me the tree's hidden condition. Beneath the surface, years of decay resulted in the branch breaking off. He took his penknife and jammed it right into the heart of the tree, all the way through, rotten to the core. <sighs> there was the proof. The flume, the outer layer next to the bark, continued to act as a food supply lane from the leaves to the rest of the tree and vice versa. Nutrients and sap flowed freely through the outer layer of the willow from the roots, but the hardwood of the trunk was structurally compromised. It was rotten. The tree became a health and safety hazard. And maybe when you pass by the manse in Main Street, you can see that it's been cut down right to its roots. And so as this happened, as I saw the willow being cut down, I wept 
for the weeping willow. Perhaps you've had that feeling of emptiness and loss when you've seen a chapter come to a close, ended, after a long battle with an illness, after many years of trying to make the marriage work. It was for them the right call to file divorce. The abuse wouldn't stop, not even after the therapy and the counseling. So friends, how does this all fit into our passage for today? I think it's a helpful metaphor for us and the church when we're facing hardship and suffering, collectively, but also individually. When Israel, for example, was taken into exile in 586 BC, the Babylonians threw them into a corner and they were often described as a tree cut down with only the stump remaining. They yearned for the years of worshipping Yahweh freely in their own temple, but they were left outside on the margins in a foreign country as aliens. Did he just say aliens? Indeed I did. Throughout history, God's people have mostly been distinguished as such. Weird and wacky. Aliens. Listen to an earlier verse in 1 Peter 2. But you, it says in verse 9, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And he continues, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and exiles, strangers, to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Foreigners, strangers, they have no status in their lands. They are the marginalized, the worker slaves, the undocumented workers of their time. These were people who had no power to do anything other than suffer in their context. Christians, followers of Jesus, are these peculiar aliens who embrace death. For it is in and through death that we can and must surrender to God, to be born again, yield to His will in our lives. Bonifer, himself martyred by the Nazis, in his most remembered sentence says, When Christ calls us, He bids us come and die. Jesus said, those who want to save their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake will find it. A foreign and alien concept for a world doing everything they can to avoid suffering, to avoid unhappiness. All these self-help books, all of them are so self-centered and self-focused about our own happiness. We believers say we accept the failings and fallings of this world. Suffering is inevitable. Make sure that when it comes, not if it comes, it is for the right reasons. To know that suffering and persecution and oppression isn't for nothing. That our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, as Romans 8 says. 
Friends, First Peter is addressing small house churches, as we said, scattered over all of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Christians were a small, struggling, messianic sect of Judaism in the first century. In four of the five chapters of this letter, Peter alludes to the persecution of Christians. The axe is already against the tree. He implies that believers are living in hard times because as a minority, they experience rejection by these other people, the rest of the population. I wonder, have you ever experienced rejection because you follow Jesus? James 1 verse 2 says, Consider it pure joy when trials of different kinds cross your path. How is that possible? These trials change us. They refine us. And it's often the change we fear most. We don't know how to handle it or what to do with our pain when the change comes. Charlie Brown was sitting in a deck chair near the front of a large boat when Lucy walked up. Some people go through life with a deck chair facing forward, gazing out where they are going, Lucy said philosophically. Others go through life with the deck chair facing backwards, looking at where they've been. So then she paused and pondered her profound thoughts. Looking directly into Charlie Brown's sunglasses, she asked him, Charlie Brown, which way is your deck chair facing? Charlie Brown responded simply, I really don't know. I've never been able to get my deck chair unfolded. This analogy was shared by the convener of the Faith Nurture Forum at the Presbytery meeting earlier in the week to emphasize the process of going forward for the Church of Scotland. We are hurting. Some will call it suffering through the closing of buildings, trees, places of hope being cut down. Why? It seems on the surface at least if they're doing missional work. We know that a tree will be known by the fruit it bears. For now we've been us as a church spared the closure of any of our buildings. Most churches, not only in our presbytery but around the country, don't have that luxury. Where is this all coming from? And how are we to respond to this, dear brothers and sisters in Christ? James Finley offers wisdom. He learned from Thomas Merton, who was his novice master when Finley was a young monk. With regards to what we just discussed, he says, Often when I'd go in to see Thomas Merton for spiritual direction, he'd say, How's it going? And I'd say, I'm doing well. And he'd say, Don't make much of it. It'll get worse. And other times I would go in really down about something, and he'd say, Don't make much of it. It'll get better. It ebbs and flows, it ebbs and flows. But what is the infinite love that unwaveringly permeates the wavings of our heart? And how can we reserve this inner core place within ourselves that cannot be accessed 
by the finite because it belongs completely to God. Why are we able to handle suffering? Why and how? The first is probably more important. Because of Jesus. God is present in our sufferings because of the suffering servant. He bore the most humiliating and painful suffering through his rejection and agonizingly brutal death. When tortured, Jesus committed no sin. He accepted God's full punishment for every sin of every one of God's chosen people. And somehow, we are encouraged to follow his example. The footsteps in which we walk is that of faithful and persistent obedience to God's calling, no matter how costly it may be. When Christians put up with this undeserved suffering, we're not saying that injustice doesn't matter. God's dearly beloved people are simply saying that God is the final judge who will finally resolve things justly. The pain that Christians, you and I, continue to endure isn't a penalty for our sin. Christ has graciously suffered in our place. The pain will still endure as part of our sharing in His rejection. While God isn't the source of undeserved misery, God is determined to graciously use it for God's beloved people and their well-being. Christ came not only to redeem us, but also to set an example, to show us how to live. Therefore, like a child in school, we need to do our best to emulate our teacher, Jesus Christ. And friends, in the same way that Peter encouraged those smaller communities of faith, I want to encourage you today, whatever suffering you are going through right now, whatever hardship, whatever exploitation or oppression you've ever had to endure because of your faith, maybe you've been pushed to, to, to the margins or maybe you've been ignored in your working environment, in the office or wherever, or people have treated you differently. It's sometimes the small things that make us feel excluded. Remember, you are a citizen of heaven. Your identity is in Christ. And because of that, we can rejoice in all forms of trial and tribulation. For God is there with us. And that is how we tackle the hardship. With Jesus by our side, through His Spirit, the Counselor, the one interceding on our behalf. I would encourage you to go and talk to someone if you do suffer, if you are going through something painful, to get it off your chest and to bring it into the marvelous light of Lord's and God's healing hand. I encourage you to do that in this week to come. And when there are trees that are being felled in your heart and around you, do with thanksgiving. Trust that the Lord is busy in this process. In the same way that we're trusting the Lord for what's in store, for what's to come. And though you might feel like you can't, you can't even unfold the dead chair, remember that God is utterly for you. That His grace is more than sufficient for you. May you be blessed in this week to come. In the mighty name of Christ we pray. Amen.